Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. This past week, I have sensed the presence of God in a hospital room. I have sensed Him at a funeral home. I've sensed Him cleaning out boxes. (laughs) I've sensed Him making decisions. And I've sensed Him this morning, and I am grateful that when the Lord is on the throne, which He is, has been, always will be, that the situations of life do not have to shatter us, but they can in fact be things we build our lives upon because we see the faithfulness of God in so many ways. Thank you for praying for us this past week. Thank you for the cards that you sent. A number of people came to my dad's funeral on a Tuesday. And uh, for the phone calls and so many things that you did to express your love and your prayers. And uh, as Paul would say, uh, it is by the prayers of the saints and by the Holy Spirit that you make it through times like this. And so it is, in fact, if you read Paul's letter, Paul puts the prayers of the saints right up there with the Holy Spirit. And the fact that there is a sense in which the knowledge of the prayers of the saints gets us through many, many situations in our lives. So I am grateful to you uh, for what you have meant to me this past week, even at a distance, uh, in helping us through a very difficult time in our lives. On Tuesday of this past week, when we buried my dad, uh, Jean Phillips, the wife of Dr. John Phillips, went to be with the Lord. Dr. Phillips wrote me a letter this week and asked me to express to you his appreciation for all the prayer cards that you've sent. John Phillips is an outstanding Bible teacher. And in fact, he has an interesting sentence in his letter I want to read to you because I think, you know, as only a man born in England could word it, he really summed it up for how all of us feel who experience loss in our lives. Please continue to pray for me as I pick up the threads of my life and look to the days ahead. So I hope that you'll remember John Phillips. I remember something Vance Havner said one time when his wife died. Somebody walked up to him and said, Vance, I'm sorry that you've lost Sarah. He said, oh, I haven't lost her. I know right where she is. You see, when someone knows the Lord, you don't ever lose them. You know where they are. And you know that there is a reunion coming one day. And that reunion is going to be glorious because we don't live for funerals. We live for resurrection, and it is the hope of the resurrection that gives us the ability to walk through the crisis of life with our heads up and our hearts full because we know that this is not the end. And I'm grateful that the presence of God walks through us in every situation, and I am grateful for your prayers. Let me ask you to take your Bibles, please, and turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. Now tonight we're going to begin a study in the book of Ephesians, and tonight will be introductory in Ephesians, but this is the second message in Nehemiah. This, our schedule has been so crazy the last few weeks, I feel like I need to preach the other one over uh, so I can remember what I said. But if you remember something that I said in the first message on Nehemiah, and that is that leadership can be learned. And if we're going to be leaders in our home, in our schools, in our businesses, in our churches, in our Sunday school departments, wherever it is, 
We have to learn how to be leaders. It's not an innate skill, especially if you're going to be a godly leader. It's something that God teaches you and builds inside of you. In Nehemiah chapter 1 and beginning in verse 4, we find that the first lesson that the leader learns is he has to be a man or a woman of prayer. Nothing else matters. If you and I are not men and women of prayer, then nothing we do will be eternally significant because we'll do it in our flesh and we won't do it in the power of God. So let me begin reading in verse 4 of Nehemiah chapter 1. And it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open to hear the prayer of thy servant, which I am praying before thee now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, thy servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. I and my father's house have sinned, we have acted very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments nor the statutes nor the ordinances which thou didst command thy servant Moses. Now if you take a casual glance at the book of Nehemiah, you will think that it is a book only about a building project or about the battles that you have in those kind of situations or about the blessings that come when you obey God. But really when you look at the book, it is a book about prayer. It is bathed in prayer. There are at least 12 prayers mentioned in this book. The book opens with a prayer. It closes with a prayer. Most of Nehemiah's prayers are spur-of-the-moment prayers. They're in a moment. He says, and I prayed, and I asked God, and I call on the God of heaven. It's just a quick spur-of-the-moment prayer. It would be what Paul would say, we are to pray without ceasing. Nehemiah lived in a prayer environment. His private life impacted his public life. I get a little concerned, I think, when I hear these public officials say, you know, it doesn't matter what I do in private. It doesn't affect my ability to govern or make decisions or to rule or to legislate or to do anything else. There's a Greek word for that, baloney. What you do and who you are in private does affect who you are in public. No matter how much we try to cover it and no matter how much we try to compartmentalize our lives, what we are in private eventually works its way out into the public spectrum of our life. If we are not people of God in private, we will certainly not be the people of God when we're in public. Ultimately, the facades go down and who we really are comes to the surface. Now, I want us to look at Nehemiah this morning. His name is an interesting name. I want to go back to just the beginning. It's the book of Nehemiah. You remember that Nehemiah and Ezra were one book in the oldest Hebrew manuscripts. This is the second book of, of uh, Ezra, or the book of Nehemiah. His name means the comfort of Yahweh. And as you look through this book and you read it, you find how God uses Nehemiah to comfort his people. His name also means the controlling breath or spirit of God. Nehemiah was a man on which the spirit of God rested. His name indicated his life. The spirit of God controlled him, rested on him, guided him in his decision making. 
Now, it's interesting when you go back even further in his name, the verb root of his name means pity, which becomes active in the interest of others. Pity, which becomes active in the interest of others. In other words, if you and I are controlled by the Spirit, and if we are to have the comfort of God in our lives and through our lives, then we get active in the lives of others. It's not something that we keep inside of us. It's something we express to one another. Now, as you see in your notes, Nehemiah prayed before he started. He prayed while the job was going on, and he prayed after it was over. Here was a man who was very busy. Now, let me, let me ask you something. Have you, don't raise your hands because we don't need this much honesty. Have you ever had a day, maybe a week, when you said, I am so busy, I don't have time to pray. I do not have time to have a quiet time. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to talk to God. I've got too many things going. Well, Nehemiah was a manager. He was an administrator. He was an organizer. He built a wall in 52 days. But the first thing he did was he called a prayer meeting with himself as the only participant. He didn't call a committee meeting. He didn't look at the budget. The first thing he did was he went to prayer. Now, that is usually our last option. It should always be our first. That the first thing we think to do when there's a crisis, the first thing we think to do when there's a problem is that we go to God in prayer. Nehemiah prayed. Now, leaders do more than pray, but they never do anything until they pray. If you make a decision in an unprayed-over environment, chances are you're going to have to change that decision. Martin Luther said, I am so busy that I cannot begin to do what I need to do today until I've spent three hours in prayer. You know what three hours in prayer do for you, don't you? It'll keep you from doing some of the things that you think you really have got to do that you don't really have to do. It will organize your time, and you'll redeem the time. Uh, the pastor said this week in my dad's funeral, I've never met a man more ready to die. I've never met a man more ready to go to heaven. You can only do that, my friends, when you have established a relationship with Jesus Christ, and you don't have to get loose ends tied up when you're gone. You and I need to understand that the first thing we do is that we pray. Now, there are the circumstances of the prayer, and those are listed in verse 3. And they said to me, the remnant there is in the, in the province which, who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now there are three circumstances, three factors that led to this prayer. First of all, there was discouragement that led to distress. Discouragement. They looked around, the walls were torn down. The gates were burned. The, the city was in a heap and in rubble. These exiles had returned and they were in great distress. The word means misery or calamity. There was calamity because there was no sense of protection. Not only was there great distress, but the distress lends itself to dishonor. Look at the word reproach. The word reproach means sharp, cutting, penetrating, or piercing. These Jews who were in exile were in distress and they were in dishonor because the enemies of the Jews were being critical of them. They were making fun of their God. They were making 
front of the people of God. You can't even rebuild a wall. Sure, you can come back, but you're not nearly who you used to be. You're not the kind of great nation that you once were, and they were being criticized, and there were slanderous remarks and cutting remarks, and these burned into the hearts of the Hebrew people. There's a third thing. Once there was dishonor, dishonor leaves us defenseless. The walls are broken down, and the gates are burned. Here was a man who realized that his nation was defenseless against her enemies. In fact, if you read over a couple of chapters, they talk about the enemies, talk about even the foxes can get over your walls. They mock them and how weak they really were. And so this is the circumstance in which Nehemiah begins to pray. And here's a key point on being a great leader. Great leaders take their circumstances to God. Great leaders do not get overwhelmed by their circumstances, but they let their circumstances become a matter of prayer to God. You see, for them, they were panicked. They were in distress. There was reproach. For Nehemiah, it became a prayer burden for him. Whether you wallow in your circumstances or whether you walk in victory through the valley is determined by what you do in prayer. I found a book that I gave my mom a few years ago. And it was written by a lady who had, had uh, I think she'd had multiple sclerosis. And I'd glanced through the book and read parts of it, and I found it, and I sent it to my mom. And I remember writing in the front of it, and I saw it again this week as we were going through some things. Mom, I hope that you will walk through the valley and not waddle through it like I see so many people do. You see, the reason you walk through the valley of the shadow of the death because the Son of God cast that shadow. He's overcome everything in that valley that you have to fear. So great leaders, great godly people take their circumstances to God. They don't panic. There may be an initial stress. There may be an initial uproar. But when they start to look at their situation, they begin to turn it into prayer. Now, Nehemiah wept, an appropriate response. But if all he did was weep, he would have been nothing more than sentimental. But Nehemiah didn't just weep, he fasted and prayed. He knew that the way to deal with this problem was to go to the God of heaven. And so I want you to see this morning the characteristics of prayer leaders, the characteristics of prayer in the lives of prayer leaders. You and I need to learn how to pray like Nehemiah prayed. For a long time, I felt that the Lord wanted to do some things in this church and that there were some things that we needed to build and some other things. But I knew the first thing we had to do was establish a vibrant prayer ministry because nothing will happen in this church significant and eternal apart from prayer. Everything we do has to hinge on our desire to be a praying church. I talked to a man this past week and he was telling me about a particular church. And this church has had so many opportunities. And this man said this, I have never met a church more resistant to being a praying church in all my life. And I thought, dear God, why do they even call it a church? If they're not going to be a praying people, they're just having a religious social meeting. Prayer is the hinge that opens heaven's door. It is what we build our lives on. And so we've got to look at this prayer and see what characteristics of prayer there have to be for God to hear and God to answer. And the question that I want you to ask yourself as we look through this passage this morning is why should God 
answer my prayers. He will answer them on about four bases. Number one, when we are broken before God. When we are broken before God. You remember James says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God stands in opposition to pride, but he embraces humble people. Here's a man who is humble before God. He has sat down and he wept and he mourned and he fasted and he prayed. He saw the need. He saw the condition of the city. He saw the condition of the people, and it broke his heart. Now, what did his brokenness lead to? This is not the second point. This is a point under the first one, okay? Because some of you that really like the outline will just get totally freaked out if it doesn't fit the block. So I'm just telling you right now. What does brokenness lead to? Confession. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, We have acted very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which thou didst command thy servant Moses. Now look at verse 6, the last part. I have sinned. Now he says, we have sinned. We have acted corruptly. See, confession, to be true confession, as a leader, has to be twofold. First of all, it has to be personal, but it also has to be corporate. You see, what we need in this land is we need mayors and governors and presidents and senators and legislators who can have the brokenness to say, we have sinned as a nation, and we need to go back to the things that God blesses. We don't have anybody doing that. Listen, the difference between leaders and losers is very simple. This is a law of leadership. Leaders accept blame. Losers pass the buck. Losers make excuses and they're accusers. They're always saying, well, if somebody else did this and somebody else didn't follow through and they didn't do this, the leader always says, you know what? I'm at the top. It's my fault. Losers are accusers. They're always saying, well, it's their fault. And they're pointing, always pointing their finger at other people. They're the ones that made me do this. Leaders say, I'm willing to take the blame. If you and I are ever going to be the leaders that God wants us to be in our home or at work or wherever we are, then we have to be willing to say, as David said, when confronted with his sin, I have sinned. It's my fault. I did it. I can't blame my heritage. I can't blame my family. I can't blame anybody else. I made choices to do what I did. Now, there's a brokenness before God. Secondly, we base our prayers on the character of God. Verse 5, we base our prayer on God's character. I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, notice that little phrase, O Lord God of heaven. This was a favorite expression of Nehemiah. He uses it in chapter 1, verse 5, in chapter 2, verse 4, and in chapter 2, verse 20. This is the way he referred to God. O Lord God of heaven. Now, this is so important. And don't miss this if you're going to understand how God deals in the realm of prayer. Nehemiah went to God and believed that God would answer not on the basis of the words that Nehemiah prayed, but on the basis of the character of God. You see, we get hung up in our words. 
Did I say the right things? You know, I've heard people correct people praying. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. You didn't confess before you praised. You're supposed to confess and then you praise. You know what? I don't think God's running around heaven worried about that. I think he's just glad when he finds somebody that'll confess him and somebody that'll praise him. I don't think he gets uptight about that. I don't think God has to have an order and a regiment because prayer is a heart relationship. You don't walk into your earthly father and say, Hello, how are you? I'm your son. Remember me? Have we got any other bases that we need to cover? You just go in and you start a conversation. Why? Because you have a relationship. You see, the relationship is based on the character of God. Not on whether you dot all the I's or cross all the T's or pray all the right little words. There is a relationship that says, God, you will answer. Not because my problem is so big, but because you're the God of heaven. You will answer because you're bigger than my problem. You'll answer because it is your loving nature to do so. You'll answer because you told us in your word that if we being evil would give good gifts to our children, how much more will you give to those who love you? God loves you, my friend. And the one thing he wants you to understand today is he will answer your prayer not based on who you are, but based on who he is. You're not worthy of an answered prayer. His son is the worthiness of the answered prayer. What his son did for you, God looks at you through the eyes of his son and through the blood of his son, and so we approach him as the Lord God of heaven, and we take our request to him. Now, I want you to notice how he approaches God. He has great reverence for God. He's not flippant. He's familiar with God, but he's not flippant. Number one, he talks about God's position. You are great. God's position. God is great. And that means more than God is good, let us thank him for our food. I'm going for my water in case you're wondering what I'm doing. <laughs> God is great. He's the Lord God of heaven. Now, do you worship a great God? Okay, about 28% uh, of us do. Do you, do you worship a great God? Then talk to him like he is. Secondly, not only God's position, but God's power. You are awesome. You are awesome. Do you believe that God is awesome and powerful? Then talk to him like he is. You know, we say, oh, Lord, I, I really need help with this, and, and I just hope you can do something. Listen. He said, if you have faith and believe, you can say to this mountain, move, and it will be moved. Whatever the obstacle is in your way, if it is keeping you from doing the will of God, you can go to God because He is awesome enough to change your situation or to change you or to remove the obstacle that keeps you from being what He wants you to be. Now, that doesn't mean God's our servant. What it means is God is awesome enough to do whatever He wills to do to glorify His name on earth. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's an awesome God. We sang it this morning. You are awesome in this place, mighty God. But I'm going to tell you something. He's just as awesome tomorrow when you go to work. Now, it may not look like it. It may not smell like it. The conversations going on around you may not sound like it, but he is just as awesome where you work. His power, his position, his promises, who preserves the covenant. Lord, I got a rubble problem. 
I've got these walls that are torn down. I've got these gates that are burned. But I've got an awesome God who sits on the throne and preserves his covenant. And you've made promises to us, and I'm holding you to those. The character of God. Now, third thing, and this is very important. You have to believe in the promises of God. Notice that he says, for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have a little slogan that we use in Sherwood's story. We talk about what a great church is. A great church has a great commitment to the great commission and the great commandment, and that makes it a great church, and that doesn't have anything to do with size. A great commitment to the great commission and the great commandment makes a great church. What's the great commandment? Love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. To those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, if you look at these prayers of Nehemiah, you notice that he's drawing from the covenant books of the Old Testament. And there's a chart there for you. We don't have time to look at it, but it tells you how he prayed. And I want you to notice in verses 5 through 11 all the scripture that he references in his prayers. Here's a man who has a knowledge of the Word of God. Now, how do you and I pray and get God to answer? We pray the Word of God. We are so familiar with the Word of God that as we pray and as we speak to God, the Word of God begins to flow through our life and the Holy Spirit brings remembrance of the promises of God and the truths of God and those things begin to come out of our life and through our lips and in our mind and all of a sudden we don't have any fear whether we're praying the will of God or not because we're praying the Word of God. That's what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah simply took God at his word. Now, I want you to look at verse 8. And notice how he repeats, if and I will. He's reminding God of his promises. Verse 8, remember the word which thou didst command thy servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments... Though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens. In other words, what he's saying is, God, you told me in your word that if we do what you tell us to do, that distance is not a problem for you. Obstacles are not a problem for you. I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. And they are thy servants and thy people whom thou didst redeem by thy great power and thy strong hand. Now, notice what Nehemiah is doing. He's reminding God of what he said. Now, has God gotten so old that he needs to be reminded of what he said? No. You see, the reason we're to remind God of what he said is so that we can know we remember what he said. You see, I can remind God of what I remember. And I remember these promises in this book. And I can stand on those promises and say, Lord, you told me that your grace is sufficient. I'm going to stand on that promise today. You told me that you'd meet every need according to your riches in Christ Jesus. I'm going to stand on that promise today. You told me, Lord, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm going to stand on that promise today. You told me that you could meet my needs. I'm going to stand on that promise today. And you begin to pray on the basis of the Word of God and believing the Word of God. And I've got to tell you, I don't think anything pleases the Lord more than reminding Him of His promises. Because every time it seems in the Old Testament, especially, that the servants of God remind him of his promises, God is quick to act. 
God loves to work in behalf of people who remember what he told them he would do. God hears and he remembers. He just wants us to remember. Now, I want you to notice the strength of his prayer is determined in how well he knew the promises of God. But the secret of his prayer was in standing on those promises. In spite of the circumstances. In spite of the situations that were going on. You see, the strength of your prayer life is the promises of God. But the secret to your prayer life is standing on those promises when you want to give up and try to take matters in your own hands. That's the secret. If you want power in your prayer life, then when everything says give up, take the matter in your own hands, do it yourself, forget talking to God, it's not working, do this on your own, you just keep standing on the promises of God. Are you standing on any promises today? Belief in the promises of God is a key ingredient to you having answered prayer. Well, there's one more. Biblical praying is specific. Verse 11. O Lord, I beseech thee, may thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servants, the prayer of thy servants, who delight to revere thy name, and make thy servants successful today, and grant him compassion before this man. Now, I was a cupbearer to the king. Now, there's two things about biblical praying being specific. First of all, it's bold. It's bold. We come boldly before the throne of grace. Why? Because of our great high priest. Jesus Christ ever lives to make intercession. He's already praying for me. The Holy Spirit inside of me is praying for me. So why can't I come boldly along with the Son and the Spirit and say, Lord, here's what I need. Here's what's going on in my life. Come boldly, and he came biblically. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. Turn there if you would, please. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. Biblical praying is specific. Now, don't lose your place in Nehemiah because you have to turn to the index to find it, but... Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Now, here's a command with a promise. So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Now, look at Joshua 1.8, then you'll have success. Look at the prayer in Nehemiah 1.11. Make thy servant successful. Now, how in the world could he pray for success? Because he's been praying based on the promises of God. He knew what Joshua 1.8 said. He knew what the promises of God were, that if he meditated on the Word, and as you look at all these scriptures that he has referred to in his prayer, as he's thought about what God has said, as he's taught himself and studied and disciplined himself to see the Word, he knows what God says. So he says, Lord, you said if I'd meditate on this Word, you'd make me successful. Now make me successful. And I don't know somebody sitting out there saying, well, I just don't think you ought to pray for that. So what do you want to pray for? Be a failure? Lord, make me a failure. How in the world can you pray to be successful? You can pray that way when you live according to what the Word says you have to do to be successful. You see, this is success with integrity. This is success with character. 
This is success with godliness. This is not success by the world standards of cut everybody's throat and stand on the bodies after you've wiped them all out to get to the top. This is success based on a commitment to Jesus Christ and his word and a prayerful attitude that says, Lord, I can ask you to make me successful because I'm standing on the promises of Jesus Christ. So here's a man who prayed to be successful. And he didn't hesitate to do it. Can I make a suggestion? If you can't ask God to bless what you're doing, maybe you ought to start doing something else. If you can't ask God, whatever you're doing, whatever you're involved in, as a family, as an individual, in your business, if you can't say, now, Lord, you know where I am, you know what I do, and I'm just going to ask you to make me successful in this. If you don't feel like you can ask God to make you successful, then maybe you need to do something else. Because if you're doing what the Word of God says, if you're living the way the Word of God says that you're supposed to live, then according to the promises of the Word of God, you can say, Lord, make me successful because I've honored your Word and it's not departed from me day and night. You see, I can pray for God to make this church successful because this church is built on a belief in the inerrancy of the Word of God. And as long as we hold to that belief, as long as we stand on these principles and promises of God's Word, there's nothing wrong with me asking God to bless this church. And I'll ask God to bless any church that does that. Any church that stands on the Word of God, I'll ask God to bless them and to make them successful because that's what God says He'll do when we honor His Word. Now, there are four things that you need to do to raise the level of your prayer life. Number one, a conviction of who God is. A conviction of who God is. You see, I believe God's who He says He is. I don't even understand all of that. It's beyond my ability to comprehend. You know, I, I can't even fathom what heaven is like. I can't fathom. I don't know how big His throne is. I, I, I don't understand all the intricacies of a lot of things, but I know one thing. I know that God says, I am that I am. And he is. He is everything I've ever needed him to be. I have a conviction of who God is. Now, you can argue with me about denominations or about a lot of different things, but I, I tell you one thing. I've got a conviction that God is exactly who he said he is. He is a loving God. He judges sin. He hates sin. He loves sinners. He created heaven, and hell is our choice. Heaven is our choice. Where you go is determined by what you do at Calvary. I believe that God said there's one way to salvation, and that is through the blood of Jesus Christ. There's not many ways. There may be many churches and many denominations, but there's one way to Jesus Christ, and it's through the blood of Jesus. It's through confession of sin. I just believe that God's who he said he is, and I believe he's going to do what he said he's going to do. I believe that one day the dead in Christ are going to rise, and those of us who remain are going to be caught to meet them in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. You say, well, I don't understand how this is going to happen. Well, if you just go sit by a cemetery and you live long enough and the Lord comes back, you'll see it, but you won't be able to tell anybody because it'll happen so quick it'll be over. But I believe that's going to happen. My wife and I were doing a funeral in uh, Ada, Oklahoma one time. She was with me, and, and it was on the day when that guy predicted that Jesus was going to come back in 1988, you know. And so we're out there in this funeral. I mean, it's a beautiful, clear day like it is today. And, 
And, you know, this guy predicted it. He was going to September the 12th, 1988, which, you know, you can always know if somebody says it's going to be today, it's not going to be because the Lord said nobody knows the day or the hour. But, you know, it's an interesting thought. And, and so we're standing out there in that cemetery, and I kind of look over at Terry, and I said, what if he's right? <laughs> I said, you know, we're, we're going to be standing here, and these people are going to come out of this grave, and we're going to be able to just in a split second turn to each other and go, and then we'll be gone. See, I have a conviction of who God is. I believe that what God says in his word is true. Secondly, there's a confession of what I am. Paul said, O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of sin? I know what I am. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I need the grace of God. I know that in me dwells no good thing. I know that thy only worth is the worth that Jesus Christ has inside of me in the presence of the Holy Spirit. I know that God doesn't judge by the external appearance of a man. He judges by the internal heart of a man. I know that God says that there is none righteous, no, not one. I know I am not righteous. I know he's righteous inside of me. I confess who I am. I don't get to strut my way into heaven. I'll fall humbly at the knees of Jesus and thank him that he even let me have an opportunity to get in. Now, I'm going to tell you this. If, it, if heaven wasn't a reality, and I believe it is, but if heaven wasn't, wasn't a reality, I still know that what God has made me from what I was, it's been worth being a Christian if it all ended in this life because of the difference he's made in me and the way he's changed me. Number three, I have to have confidence in what God's Word says. And we've said enough about that, so I'll go to number four. A commitment to do what God says and to be a part of the answer. A commitment to do what God says and to be a part of the answer. Now listen. It's one thing to pray for God to do something. It's another thing for God to say, okay, you be a part of the answer. Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. There was a conviction of who God is. And I said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. There was a confession of who he was. And he saw the needs. And God said, I need somebody to go. That's what God's word said. And Isaiah said, Lord, here am I. Send me. You see, there has to be a commitment on our part that when we see God as he is and we begin to pray boldly to God as he is and we begin to stand on the word of God, God may say to us, great, I'm glad you've been praying about that. I want you to be the answer. You see, some of you have been praying for relatives to be saved and you're the one that's supposed to be talking to them. And you're trying to get everybody else in the world to talk to them, but it's you. God's told you it's you. You say, well, I just can't talk to family. You know how family is. This word of God tells, doesn't say anything to me about you can or cannot talk to members of your family. It tells me that the Holy Spirit of God goes ahead of you and with you and around you and behind you and is in you and gives you power and the Holy Spirit of God convicts of sin. God will give you the ability. If he wants you to be the one to share the gospel, he'll give you the ability to do it. See, I have to be willing to be a part of the answer. I have to be willing to let God use me to be a part of the answer. Now let's go back to the leader in prayer. Let, let's say there's a leadership scale 
and it goes from one to ten, and one being the lowest and ten being the highest, and all of us are leaders. We've already talked about that. If you're a parent or if you're involved in school, if anybody listens to you at all, you're a leader. If anybody stops talking when you're talking, you're a leader. You have influence over people. But let's say your leadership scale is one to ten, and if you were to judge yourself on a leadership scale today, you would say, well, today I feel like on a leadership scale I'm at about a seven. Let me tell you how to find out where you really are on your leadership scale. Go over here on an identical scale of 1 to 10 and make that your prayer scale. And if you're at a 2 on your prayer scale, you are not at a 7 on your leadership scale. You're at a 2 or less on your leadership scale because you cannot lead like God says to lead until you've prayed like God says to pray. You see, prayer is influence. And prayer is tied directly to your ability to lead people. And as the level of your prayer life goes up, so does the level of your influence go up. And the power in your life goes up in direct proportion to the power of prayer in your life. I've got to tell you a funny story. Then we're through. Dr. Fred Smith was a dentist in Pascagoula, Mississippi. And Dr. Smith and I been friends for years. He was my 10th grade Sunday school teacher. And uh, in fact, our chairman of the deacons was at the uh, funeral, and he decided maybe that they had, some of the deacons ought to stay around and interview some of the people in the church I grew up in, and I quickly hurried them on their way. Um, Dr. Smith and I always talked golf and, and stuff like that, but he was my 10th grade Sunday school teacher. And he made an interesting statement to me while, while we were standing at, at the funeral home. He said, you know, he said, I, so I always believed in this boy. He said, so I, 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 knew, I knew something about him, boy, when, when he was in 10th grade. He said, Super Bowl Sunday, the year the, the Baltimore played the New York Jets and Joe Namath guaranteed that they were going to win. He said, we were talking before Sunday school got started. You know, I don't know if you know this, but there are some Sunday school classes that don't just study the lesson. They talk about football and things like that, you know. I, I've heard that. I've never seen it, but I, I've heard that there are classes that talk other things besides the Bible. That's what I've heard. And uh, so Dr. Smith and, and, the, and, you know, all 10th grade boys, we're sitting there talking football. You know, we're deeply spiritual. And, and so we're, we're talking about football. So it comes to the end of Sunday school, and Dr. Smith says, now, Michael, why don't you pray for us? And so we stood up, and I prayed. And I prayed, dear God, let the Jets beat the Colts today. <laughs> and they did. Dr. Smith said, I've always believed in his prayer life ever since then. <laughs> I said, well, I would believe a lot more in Joe Namath's arm than I believed in my prayer life, but uh, I, I tell that silly story just to make a point. Do people believe in your prayer life? Can people come to you and say, I know you know how to get a hold of God, and I need you to pray for me on a matter. You see, that's how you know your leadership's going up. When people believe in you enough and trust in you enough that they bring their needs and their hurts and their problems and they say, could you get a hold of God on my behalf on this? Then you're a leader. And you'll find when you get a hold of God on their behalf, you start to weep over people you don't even know. You start to fast about things that you used not to be concerned about. 
You'll sit down and you'll agonize and you'll pray because you'll see that God has stirred your heart to be involved in the lives of other people. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Katz. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.